Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. She does not have Secretary how to win. Clinton. Wait. Secretary Clinton. Whoa. Okay. I understand the tax laws better than almost anyone, which is why I am one who can truly fix them. I understand it. I get it. Here's my question. What kind of genius loses a billion dollars in a single year? I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. This is disgraceful. It is intolerable. And it doesn't matter what party you belong to. Democrat, Republican, Independent, no woman deserves to be treated this way. None of us deserves this kind of abuse. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. 10%. Those are Donald Trump's chances of becoming the next president of the United States at the time of this recording. In other words, Hillary Clinton's chances of losing are about the same as the probability that an NFL kicker misses a 33-yard field goal. And it's not good. No good. Yes, I had to look that up. I'm a gay reporter at the New York Times. But apparently, those are very bad odds. Judging by Donald Trump's erratic behavior over the last few days, and really Hillary Clinton's lack of any public behavior, both candidates fully understand that math. And with such decisive odds, it might seem like there's not much else to be found in the polls. But we're going to dedicate this entire episode to the numbers. Because the numbers in this campaign have a way of surprising us in ways big and small over and over again. I'm joined in the studio by Nate Cohn. He's a reporter at The Upshot and our most trusted translator of the polls. Let's start this episode where we so often end our episodes with the number, Nate, what is the one number that sums up this race right now? Zero. Zero? That is the number of instances in which a candidate has overcome the deficit that Donald Trump now faces in the polls. Never. It's not happened. Not in a presidential race. Even the big, splashy comebacks like Dewey beats Truman did not involve something as dramatic as we're talking about now. So help us understand something that I think many of our listeners may not be quite clear on because I'm not quite clear on it. Just a few weeks ago, coming out of the conventions, we were talking about what was increasingly looking like a landslide victory for Hillary Clinton. Then suddenly the race got, if not neck and neck, quite close. And we're now back to talking about Hillary Clinton's huge lead. What happened and why did Donald Trump close that gap for those few weeks? That's a really good question. I mean, it's almost a philosophical one if you are someone that follows the polls. And there's this whole debate. It's a really inside baseball debate about whether when the polls move, it reflects actual underlying changes in the attitude of voters, or whether it just reflects the willingness of certain kinds of voters to respond to the polls at any given point, or differences in whether voters at sort of the periphery of the coalition of a candidate feel comfortable announcing their support. So imagine that you're someone who doesn't like Hillary very much, but like you're eventually going to vote for her. You like the president. There's no way you're going to vote for Donald Trump. The convention is over. You're feeling good about Hillary. You go out, pollster calls you up, you say you're going to vote for her. A couple weeks later, you haven't heard as much good news about her in a while. 
deep down you still don't like her very much, you throw up your arms and you say, I don't know what I'm going to do. So the likelihood that that person is actually going to vote may not have changed. We don't know, to tell you the truth, when we see changes in the polls, whether we're watching actual changes in attitudes or just differences in the willingness of people to respond. In general, I think that Hillary Clinton did lose some ground between the convention and the first debate. And in particular, I think she lost ground among white working class men. I think that Donald Trump consolidated a lot of undecided voters in that category. And one easy place to see that is in Ohio, where over the summer, Hillary Clinton was still sort of tied her head there. In September, she fell behind, and she is not back uh, to where she was before. But despite her weakness in Ohio, I think it's, it's pretty clear that she's restored a lot of her support among young, non-white, and college-educated voters. It's giving her a comfortable lead in a place like Florida and North Carolina. It's put Colorado and Virginia out of play, and it's left states like Texas or Arizona on the brink of competitiveness because, you know, in those states, there's a lot of room for a Republican to lose ground among uh, Hispanic or well-educated white voters. And there is very little room for them to pick up ground among white working class voters in the same way that uh, they have room for gains in Ohio or Iowa. Help me understand why Hillary Clinton opened up this big deja vu lead, you know, maybe even bigger than the one she had right after the conventions. Because the polls, as best I can tell, don't quite account for all of the things we've learned in the past couple of days, including the accounts of several women who claim that Donald Trump inappropriately touched them. Yeah, I think the the clear marker of change was the first debate. I mean, before the first debate, the polls said that Clinton was ahead by maybe two or three points. We were left wondering, was that a real shift or not, as you were just alluding to? And then immediately after the debate, she was ahead by four or five points in the balance of state and national polls. Since then, she has steadily picked up ground. I, When I look at the polls, I don't see another clear break after the video, for instance. I still see a pretty slow and linear set of gains. Whereas, and now today, maybe she's up by seven or eight points. And heading into the video, maybe she was up five or six points. And... Some of that is that there are these undecided, Democratic-leaning voters, people who approve of the president and who strongly dislike Donald Trump, who say that they're afraid of the prospect of him becoming president, who say they have a very unfavorable impression of him, who don't believe he's qualified for the job. You know, People who, when you think about them, they really seem like the sort of people who aren't going to vote for right. Donald Trump in the end. Those voters have sort of returned to Hillary to the same extent that they were after the Democratic convention. So it would be wrong to think of this as a post-debate bump because those, by definition, are ephemeral. It's like a post-debate marathon bump or something. We'll never really know what would have happened if there hadn't been all of these reinforcing events after the debate. You know, After the debate, Hillary gets this bump, and then Donald Trump spends the next week bashing Alicia Machado. Then these, these tapes come out. Then he has you know, another tough debate performance. And so maybe that bounce could have been ephemeral if the news had been different. I mean, imagine that marginal Hillary voter, if the only thing they had heard over the last two weeks was about WikiLeaks, would they ever turn back to being undecided? I think, though, that these are voters who have never supported Donald Trump in this race. And I think what we're seeing now is a window into what their final decision is going to look like. And my sense is that that's probably solidified at this point. I want to talk about undecided voters for a minute. How much of, of the phenomenon that you're describing here is undecided voters coming off the sidelines? Probably a lot of it. I mean, there is some attenuation in Trump's support, but the, the clearer trend 
is the increase in Clinton's support, a decrease in the number of undecided voters, a decrease in the number of voters who say that they support a minor party candidate like Gary Johnson. And there are more of those voters this year than usual. And over the last month, the number of undecided voters has declined steadily as voters really start to make up their mind and grapple with the fact that they are going to have to choose between one of these two candidates. Where, where are we in the current percentage of undecided voters? I guess that right now I would say that 15% of voters are undecided or with a minor party candidate. Which seems big to me. It is. In a two-way race, that number shrinks. Now maybe Clinton's up 50 to 42. And so now we're only talking about 8% who are undecided with a minor party candidate. And that's also higher than usual. So there's, I think there's been more of an increase for Clinton than there's been a decline um, for Trump. So this upswing for Hillary, where do you imagine it is in its life? I mean, how much further could it go? I think it's a great question. I think that one way to look at it is how high has Clinton been before? After the convention and after she won the nomination, as well as in March, if you really want to go back, Clinton has sort of peaked with leads in this eight-point range. So one thing, that, if you wanted to make the argument that this is sort of for Clinton, the equivalent of where Trump was heading into the debates. This is this sort of natural peak when everything's going right. This is what the race looks like. You could make that argument. Is the level of volatility in this race unusual? And let me point you to numbers that I just went and found using our great Upshot website last night. So if you go back to mid-September, the New York Times forecasting model said Hillary Clinton had a 73% chance. Now she's back at 90, I think, as of basically today. Mm -hmm. Do we see these kind of fluctuations a lot? Did we see them back in 2012 or 2008? So I think that this is pretty comparable to 2008. I mean, remember in early September of that year after the Republican convention and before the financial crisis, the race was basically a dead heat. The race quickly turns against the Republicans after the financial crisis, after Sarah Palin has some embarrassing interviews, and then Obama runs away with it. So that range between basically a dead heat and then ultimately the sort of comfortable lead that we have right now, that we've seen that before. I think that this is a a more volatile race than 2012. You could never have really said that Obama had more than a five or six point lead in the polls, even after the 47% gaffe. But I don't think that this race is far outside of the historical norm. And to the extent that it is, I think that it's more a result of the larger number of undecided voters, um, which again, may be in part a product of the questions that we're asking. Well, Nate, I have to ask you then, what are the questions we're asking that might skew this all? Is, is it that we're asking, for example, about the third party candidate? Yeah. The question is whether it's better to ask voters about Clinton versus Trump or about the four-way race that also includes Jill Stein and Gary Johnson. And it's a really tough question. So in the one extreme, imagine a strong third party candidate, Ross Perot, for instance, who has a strong base of support, who has an active campaign. You have to name someone like that. Now imagine the opposite. Imagine that I throw out a totally random name. How many people are going to take that name if I give you what? And they, why are they taking it? Yeah. They could be using it simply as a way to register their dissatisfaction with the major party candidates. Or even if they have no idea what to make of this candidate I just made up, that might lead them to say they're undecided because I've now given them an option that they didn't even know they had. And I think that Gary Johnson and Jill Stein sort of blur the line between a candidate who's too minor to mention and a truly solid, factional, third-party candidate. I think that the danger of naming them is that we'll overstate their support because we'll be introducing an option to voters that they don't know they have and won't be seriously considering until we give it to them directly in a poll question. And I think that if we if we don't name them, we have the danger of missing that there is a real block of voters who are dissatisfied with both candidates and intend to register that dissatisfaction 
by voting for a third-party candidate. I don't think that we know which will prove to be more accurate. So, Nate, when you crunch the numbers, which you do all the time, do you see a difference in the data when it's presented as a four-way race versus a two-way Clinton-Trump race? So in the two-way race, Clinton tends to lead by a somewhat wider margin than she does in the four-way race. And in particular, there are a lot of young voters who are taking Gary Johnson or Jill Stein when you give them that option, but they end up breaking to Clinton in the two-way race. And then separately, I would note that this is that which of these two questions you use has some influence on the confidence of an election model. So if I'm using the four-way race, my model will tell me that there's more uncertainty about this election than it would in the two-way race where there are fewer minor party voters. It's fascinating. Voters. And it should be noted that the, the, the major polling models out there, whether it's us or 538, they tend to use the four-way race. And so there's a little bit extra uncertainty there that wouldn't exist if a different choice had been made months ago. I want to ask about two polls that were done in the last week and just released around the same time. One was an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that had Clinton up 11 points. The other was an ABC News Washington Post poll that had Hillary Clinton up four. How is it that two major polls done by these reputable news organizations or alliances of news organizations can produce a seven-point discrepancy like that? In general, you know, I think that it's good to be pretty sober about over-interpreting single polls. There are so many ways that individual polls can be off by a little bit. I mean, the margin of error, plus or minus three or four points in a lot of these polls, it's not made up. So it's a real source of uncertainty. And one thing that people don't always realize is that three or four points is not on the margin. That's on each individual candidate. And so the margin of error for the margin between is, the two candidates is actually even larger. Is double, maybe. And so I'm not... So, so when I see a difference like that, it doesn't, that doesn't really concern me much. I think that's basically what we should expect. So let's go back to the New York Times model, right? 90% chance for Clinton, 10% chance for Donald Trump. 10% may be low odds, but it's still odds. Let's talk about what a Trump victory would look like. Does it depend on like an event, some sort of October or late October surprise? Or is it actually reasonably possible in the absence of such an event? The polls aren't wrong by this much very often. You know, as we said at the beginning, we've never seen a race change this much at the end. Does that mean it's impossible? No. I think that you would need probably both a systematic error in the polls, where just all of the polls are tilted towards Clinton. And I think you would need some significant external event. Uh, for what it's worth, I think that a lot of the things that aren't included in our model are bad for Trump. Like, you know, the model just says knows he's down seven. It doesn't know that the trend line is bad for him. It doesn't know that he has to deal with these stories about um, allegations of sexual misconduct and assault. It doesn't know that in the two-way race, Clinton's doing better. So, I mean, to me, I see a 90, and I would probably shade a little higher than that right now. So let's say there isn't an event and the polling's not off. One out of 10 chance still exists. Like, what does that actually look like? What would it look like for him to win? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, first, he has to clean up his mess in the red states. He has to win a state like Texas, Arizona. He has to win the states that were won by Romney. Then I think it's really clear how you can get him to 259 electoral votes. Win the states carried by Romney, including North Carolina and Arizona and Utah and whatever, and then Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. And, you know, those states aren't easy by any stretch. In fact, I would say that Clinton's lead in Florida and North Carolina right now is actually pretty equivalent to Obama's lead in Ohio at this time in 2012 when everyone said that Ohio was Obama's firewall. And even then, that only gets Trump to 259. So from there, he's got to come up with 11 more electoral votes or 10 and throw it to the House, which would be something, wouldn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> I think that there are 
basically two ways to do it. One is a big state, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I think those are really tough. I think he could be down by more than 10 points in those states right now. And then the other way he can do it is to cobble together some combination of small states. Maybe he could win New Hampshire, Nevada, and Maine's second congressional district. That would get him to exactly 270. Maybe he could win Wisconsin and Maine's second congressional district, or Wisconsin another state. That would get him to 270. Those states are tough, too, though. You mentioned Pennsylvania. I wonder if there's one or two districts in that state that you've spent some time studying that are like swings within the swing state. I mean, Pennsylvania's districts are a total mess because of because of gerrymandering, and they snake from the inner suburbs of Philadelphia all the way out to you know the beautiful countryside of Lancaster and you know where the Amish live. So I don't usually think of Pennsylvania in terms of the districts, but there are I think two main regions of the state that, in a lot of ways, and tell the whole story of the election. One of them is you know the most overhyped part of the country, but it, it, I think it deserves the hype this year. I don't think it did before, but that's Scranton. Obama won more than 60% of the vote there. It's white working class, traditionally Democratic. That's the sort of place that Trump has to make huge gains. And, and he has a huge opportunity, right? I mean, these are demographically exactly the sort of voters that he ought to be able to appeal to. It's a decaying industrial town. You know, if he can't run up the score there, where else is he going to do it? And then on the other hand, you have the traditionally Republican suburbs west of Philadelphia, Chester County, Republican voting parts of Delaware County. If if the polls are right, I think that Hillary Clinton could win these areas by margins that we haven't that haven't been seen since 1964. You've often beat the drum of North Carolina, North Carolina, North Carolina. Where does the run-up's favorite state stand right now? I think that Clinton has a really clear advantage in North Carolina. Just for one, the polls speak for themselves. Since the first debate, Donald Trump has not led in a single poll of North Carolina. That weakness is also underpinned by some big demographic challenges for him. This is the state where Mitt Romney was best among white working class voters of the battleground states in 2012. So there just isn't much room for Donald Trump to improve among the voting bloc that he's counting on improving among. And on the other hand, this is this battleground state where Mitt Romney was best among white voters with a college degree. So there's a ton of room for him to lose among the voters that he's weakest among. And if the polls are right, he may not even be winning the white college-educated vote in North Carolina. And Mitt Romney probably won that vote by 30 points. And if that's true, Hillary Clinton is going to run up a huge lead in Raleigh, Durham, and Charlotte. And again, there just isn't enough white working-class vote to make up for it. I want to talk about turnout. And in particular, I want to talk about this concept, which is gaining a lot of currency, perhaps rightfully, perhaps wrongfully, of the shy voter. And it's this idea that in particular with Donald Trump, there's a voter out there who will be reluctant to tell a pollster that they're actually going to be voting for Donald Trump. So maybe they'll say Jill Stein. Maybe they'll say undecided. Maybe they'll say Gary Johnson. How powerful a force do you think this is actually going to be in the election? I'm skeptical of this theory. I'm skeptical that people are reluctant to divulge their support for Donald Trump because of the social stigma. For one, I just look at his supporters and I don't see very much evidence of it. Um, and the they're second, not a shy. They are not a type. shy group. They are not quiet either. Uh, the second thing is, you know, we have a lot of online polls and automated polls that do not require uh, people to interact with a human. And I think that those polls show Trump doing about as poorly as the live interview polls in terms of his share of the vote. So, like, an online poll might show Trump at thirty-seven, while a live poll might show him at forty. So, oddly, it shows him doing worse. So, why? Why would that be? And I think it actually gets at an even weirder version of the shy theory. 
which is it's not that voters are shy about saying that they support Trump or Clinton. It's that they really don't want to support Trump or Clinton. And, you know, these voters deep down, they may know exactly what they'll end up doing on Election Day, but they have not like mentally gotten themselves in a state where they're ready to enunciate their support for a candidate they don't like. And I think that applies to both candidates. When it comes to the undecided voter, can you help us get a bit of a mental picture of who these people are? Like, what's the profile of the remaining undecided voter at this point? I don't think there's a profile of them. I think that, and that's that's different. You know, usually there's like this caricature of like some, you know, hockey mom or something who, you know, lives in the suburbs who's going to decide the election on her way to soccer practice or something. Uh, I don't think that that caricature holds up this year. I think that the profile of undecided voters is really broad. It includes conservative Republicans who really don't think Donald Trump's a conservative. It includes people on the left who don't think that Hillary Clinton is suitably liberal. It includes people from across the spectrum who are simply disgusted with both candidates. So the un- the, the pool of undecided voters is pretty diverse. I think it, it includes basically every voting block. The one thing that they have in common is that they really don't like either candidate. It's always seemed to me that polling's more of an art than a science. And once in a while, as we learned last week, it's really fallible, right? Like there are things we learn that make us realize, wow, polling, not always so accurate. Can you tell us the story of the 19-year-old from Illinois <laughs> who somehow distorted polls in this kind of hilariously outsized way? So there's this poll called the Los Angeles Times USC poll, and it's a panel, which means they recontact the same voters over and over again. And this poll has been the most consistently pro-Trump survey out there. In fact, even right now, Trump is in the lead, even as he falls behind by double digits in other surveys. So on a tip that the raw data was out there and available, we went and dug into it. And what we found was that they were making some really unusual choices that were at least partially, and I would say account for most of the difference between that poll and other surveys. And all of these weird choices that they made, they kind of boiled down into one extreme case, which is that there's this one guy, as you said, a 19-year-old black man in Illinois, who was given 30 times the weight of the average respondent. And by weight, I mean like he's counting for 30 people. It's a very special voter. And he counted 300 times more than the least important voter in the poll. And despite the demographic profile I laid out, he was a supporter of Donald Trump. And so he alone could be worth two or three points in the survey. And what's more, from a voting block where he was as unrepresentative of his demographic group as he really could be. How do they explain that? How do they defend the choices that they made? Right. Um, there is a justification for it, which is that if you don't fully weight this up, then they wouldn't have enough black people in their sample. So imagine for a moment that he was a Clinton supporter, as you would expect. If you didn't give him that much weight, then they would be essentially 30 black people short in their poll. And then we would all be sitting here and complaining about how the USC poll is off because it's undershooting the black share of the electorate. So they're making a choice to remedy that. They just happen to be remedying it with a guy that's unrepresentative of his demographic group. That just seems like bad it's luck. It's a lot of bad luck. So Mitt Romney, who I covered, he's kind of the ultimate management consultant. He used to do something that I thought was kind of admirable at the end of every one of his presidential campaigns. He convened this incredibly thorough postmortem, right? This kind of study of what went wrong. I want to pretend it's November 9th and Trump either won or did much better than we anticipate. Great question. Let's pretend we're doing the postmortem now. 
what would you immediately suspect were the weaknesses in the data or the missed signs along the way? I think that we would look at a few things happening. One is I think that Donald Trump would really run up the score among white voters without a degree. I think that people have overlooked the extent that this is already happening. And they've overlooked it because of some weird quirks of the exit polls and the pre-election polls. And they're making some weird comparisons that make it seem like Trump isn't doing as well among them as he is. But he really is. All you have to do is look at right now he's in the race in Ohio and Iowa, states where Obama won easily. I think that that would probably be compounded by polls that were not doing a good enough job of waiting by education. Um, in the past, pollsters don't wait by education because it hasn't made much of a difference. I mean, the college-educated vote and the non-college-educated vote, vote basically voted the same in 2012. This year, that's not true. And pollsters that haven't adjusted to reflect that might be tilting a little bit too much towards Clinton. The third thing that I think we would wake up to see is that these undecided Republican conservatives in a place like Utah or in the suburbs of Milwaukee, some of the most reliably Republican places in the country, they woke up and said, you know what, Trump is not our guy, but we're going we're gonna to vote for him anyway. Hillary Clinton is unacceptable. And then I think the fourth thing, even then, we're still not getting him over the top, I don't think, by the way. But then I think the fourth thing is it takes a weak turnout among non-white and young voters. And that would get him into sort of a very close election where we stay up all night waiting to see whether Clinton squeaked it out in North Carolina and Florida or not. I think Mitt would be proud of that analysis. So my final question, Nate, are you ready to call this election? No, I can't do that. That's what we figured you'd say, because <laughs> you're good at your job. Look, I mean, I'd, I'd love to sit here and say the election's over, but we've had quite a year, haven't we? Yes, we have. Yeah. Nate, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So are we ready to call this election? Nate Cohn artfully dodged that question, and I understand why he did. Is there any self-respecting pollster out there anywhere who's willing to make the call? We put the question to a top campaign pollster on each side, a Democrat and a Republican. Jeff Guerin, Democratic pollster for Hillary Clinton in 2008. Is this election over? Well, there are a couple of things that certainly point in that direction. Beyond the pretty large spread now in the national trial heat results, if you look inside the numbers, the rationale for Donald Trump's candidacy is disappearing that Hillary Clinton has huge advantages on fitness for office and being ready to be commander-in-chief and a variety of things that are fundamental to earning the trust of voters to be president. And Donald Trump used to have some boss-setting uh, attributes. People used to think he would be better in fighting terrorism or be a stronger leader or deliver the right kind of change. But uh, if you look at the numbers, the all of Trump's uh, previous advantages on those kinds of things have dissipated. So that in addition to being behind and being behind by a lot, the rationale that would help him catch up seems to have disappeared. So at, at this stage, it looks like Donald Trump isn't even trying to win. He's creating a rationale for why he's going to lose, talking about a rigged system. Uh, that hardly reaches into the center of the electorate when you do that. And Donald Trump needs to add votes to what he has now and is not doing that. And at the very best, you can say, he is trying to energize his base, but his base is not large enough to win the election any longer. Is that as strong as you want to go? And I'm not trying to twist your arm. You know, as a pollster, I'm inherently cautious and don't, and think it's in some ways unlucky to say that things are over before they're over. But there's very little happening in the campaign right now that would suggest that 
Donald Trump can make up his pretty substantial deficit in the polls. Jeff, thank you for being here. Thank you for including me. What about Whit Ayers, Republican pollster and advisor to the Marco Rubio campaign? Are you ready to call this election? This year, I'm hesitant to make any flat predictions given the unpredictability, but Donald Trump is falling further and further behind. He's currently behind in the pollster.com average of national polls by eight percentage points. That's more than the margin by which John McCain lost to Barack Obama in 2008. And what he's doing with attacking everything that moves and spinning bizarre conspiracy theories is unlikely to close the gap. Thank you. You're the best. Happy to do it, Michael. All right. That's strike three. No one wants to call it. But in Trump's own way, he's starting to call it. His slim chances may explain why he's clinging to a set of wild-sounding theories that Hillary Clinton is taking performance-enhancing drugs, that the election is rigged at the ballot box, and that his voters are vastly undercounted by pollsters. There's no evidence for the first two, none at all. But is there something to that last claim about hidden Trump voters? We asked Kyle Drop, he's executive director of polling at Morning Consult, a media and survey company, and he used to be a member of the polling team at the Washington Post. During the Republican primaries, Kyle, you did a fascinating experiment. Tell us what you found. So in the summer and fall, we saw that there was an 8 to 10 point difference in how Trump was doing between online polls and live telephone polls. And we wanted to really get to the crux of whether there was a real difference between these live telephone polls and online polls or whether the difference was more attributable to something else. So what we did is we talked to about 2,500 Republicans. We had every single one of them come in online, answer a couple of basic questions about themselves. And then a third of them called an inbound call center where we had people waiting for them 24-7. And they answered a few questions, including a question about who they would support in the Republican primary. A third of the people, they continued and they answered the questionnaire online, just as they had started. And a third of the people, they called in and they sort of did an automated voice machine. Press one for Trump, press two for Cruz, three for Rubio. And we found that Trump did six points better online than he did by live telephone. And that difference was even larger among adults with higher levels of education. So higher adults with higher levels of education, about 8 to 10 points, more likely to sort of support Trump online than when they're talking to uh, an actual human on a live telephone phone call. What you found, does it help us understand why so many of us, and I would put the media in that category, kind of didn't see Trump coming because we weren't literally seeing something in the data that you saw quite clearly from your experiment? Well, the live telephone polls, certainly get a lot of attention. And so in general, those polls you know, had Trump you know, about 10 points lower than the other ones. And so it's possible that those polls helped us to sort of understate Trump's support. We weren't particularly surprised when Trump did well in, in February and, and March in the primaries and caucuses leading therein, because we did think there was sort of this reservoir of support, this set of individuals who sort of would say that they supported a candidate or a controversial topic or controversial issue only when they're in a more confidential environment and that they might not be able to do it when sort of they're in a social environment, such as talking to somebody one-on-one in person or talking to somebody over the phone. So, Carl, I want to talk about the psychology of what you've just described, because I have a hard time understanding why someone would be less 
truthful on the phone than they would be in front of a computer screen? Sure. So one of the biggest challenges for pollsters and survey researchers is to translate attitudes to actual behaviors. And there are a bunch of things that can get in the way of doing that. Uh, We think social desirability bias is a big one. So when you're talking to somebody on the phone, there might be a two-step process. One, when somebody asks you a question, what do I think? And then two, what will the person who I talk to think about what I say? When you're you know, responding in a confidential setting, that two-step process doesn't exist. So a lot of times when you're you know, on the phone or being interviewed, you want other people to think highly of you. And so for questions like, you know, have you donated in the past? Have you gone to church in the past? Do you watch the national TV news? Have you voted in the past? All these sorts of questions tend to get more inflated, higher responses when you're talking to somebody in person than when you're doing something online. One case in point, you know, when I worked at the Washington Post in their polling division, we asked people if they had voted in the past by live telephone interviews. And a lot of times on that question, we wanted to include a, a little clause at the beginning that said, hey, many people don't have time to, to vote or they're busy or they don't show up for some other reason. Now, did you have a chance to vote? You know, introducing that clause gives, a, gives people a way out so they can say, no, no, I didn't show up when you're sort of doing this live interview. Well, you're giving them permission. I mean, what I find fascinating is that, that we care what a stranger who's just called us for two minutes thinks of us. But I guess that pressure is so deeply ingrained that it's, it could actually have a statistical impact. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on some questions, the difference is humongous. So, for instance, uh, if you ask somebody how satisfied they are with their personal life or if their family life, people are about 20 percentage points more likely to say they're satisfied if they t- they're talking to, as you said, a stranger on the other end of the phone than if they're answering that question anonymously. This is something that um, we have found, and it's something also that uh, the Pew Research Center found um, in a study a few months ago. By the way, Kyle, I really love my family and my husband. So what we're talking about here (laughs) is the concept which has been called and as we've discussed earlier, earlier in this episode, the shy voter. And it's, it's had actually a lot of different names through time. In 1982 in California, when a candidate for governor named Tom Bradley, who was black, lost his election, it was called the Bradley effect. And what people found after analyzing the results was that his lead in the polls evaporated when people actually went to the polling place. And the, the hypothesis from the data was that they said one thing about how they might vote for a black candidate in theory, and they did something different when they had their hands on the lever in the machine. And when it comes to this race, where we have a Republican Donald Trump against a Democrat Hillary Clinton, I want to talk about the profile of the shy voter that, that you've thought about and seen in the data. So in the data, we've seen that as far as the shy Trump vote goes, it's more likely to be concentrated among adults who have higher levels of education and adults who have higher levels of income. We often see that sort of these social dynamics uh, are a bit stronger among people who are above average when it comes to education and income. So as I mentioned earlier, sometimes people exaggerate donation history or whether they voted in the past. That's often concentrated among exactly these people, sort of higher educated, um, higher income. It's important to note that uh, Clinton is not immune from having some shy voters. We have probably the two most historically unpopular candidates at the top of the ticket, at least when it comes to the age of modern polling. And so there was a poll out just a few days ago that showed that 13% of people 
said that they knew somebody who's expressed hesitation or concern uh, that they would vote for Trump. And that same number for, for Hillary Clinton was, was 8%. It appears that you know, there, are, there are shy people on, on both sides of the spectrum. So, Kyle, now we're in the general election, and I wonder, are you seeing the same phenomenon you found during the primary, this big discrepancy between online and live phone polling? We're not. We're, we're not seeing any difference, in fact, between live telephone and online polls. If you average the most recent polls from the past few weeks, Clinton and Trump have the exact same split, Clinton by seven, when you look at live telephone interview or when you look at uh, online polls. If we thought that this shy Trump or social desirability uh, bias was going to be most prevalent among uh, people who are most engaged to a high levels of education, then just may not play out in sort of this broader general election audience. It sounds from everything you've said like the shy voters for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump kind of cancel each other out, right? That there's basically a shy tie. Is that is that the right way to think about this? That's a good potential slogan for it. That was the idea. The general point we're seeing is that there just doesn't appear to be a difference in live telephone and online. We've done all these studies that show that people formed their views about Clinton or, or Trump years ago. So these are some sort of deeply held views suggest that the candidates both have a, a high floor and, and a low ceiling. Kyle, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you back here on Friday. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our campaign manager is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hennig is our legal counsel. Our senior advisor is Sam Dolnick. Our war room director is Vanessa Romo. Pedro Ozato is our chief of staff. Our head of long-term strategy is Carolyn Ryan. Our field team director is Diantha Parker. Every campaign has a theme song. Ours is by Jim Brumberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc.